from Kirkco Media. Well, here we are on our last show of 2020, a year we won't forget anytime soon. So we're going to mix it up a bit today. First, our co-host and chair one, Ed Larson. He's our own Pulitzer Prize winning historian, best-selling author. So Ed, last week, we talked about your recent article in USA Today in which you pointed out ways that the Constitution failed to ensure a check and balance in our government during the Trump presidency. Where did our Constitution fall short? When pressed by an authoritarian president, the Constitution's fabled checks and balances, which are designed to be the primary support for our individual liberties, they fail. We all know that only Congress is supposed to be able to appropriate funds, but the president freely redirected funds from one purpose to another. And the Senate is supposed to confirm high officers, but the president got around it by appointing virtually permanent acting officials. My other co-host, Jane Albrecht, an international trade attorney, member of the Supreme Court Bar. Jane, you've mentioned a number of times that you feel there's a paramount change required in our governing and political structure. What is that? I think the single most important thing that underlies all the problems we're facing in this country is the improper influence of money in our politics. And by that, I mean the influence of money overwhelming the proper role that the Congress and the executive branch should play. So campaign finance reform, is that the title it would go under? I think it's the number one challenge in this country. So what you gonna do about it? So who came to mind as the perfect guest to talk with us about the needed constitutional and governmental adjustments? Well, Sandy Levinson, of course. He wrote the book on it. The book was called Our Undemocratic Constitution, Where the Constitution Goes Wrong and How We the People Can Correct It. Professor Sanford Levinson holds a BA from Duke, a JD from Stanford, a PhD from Harvard. He became a member of the Department of Politics at Princeton. He taught law at Georgetown, Yale, Harvard, NYU, Boston, and a myriad of exotic international universities. Now, as professor of government at the University of Texas School of Law, Sandy holds the W. St. John Garwood and the W. St. John Garwood Jr. Centennial Chair in Law. This is Politics. Meet me in the middle. I'm Bill Curtis. Professor Levinson, welcome. Thank you. Delighted to be here. You're quoted in hundreds of publications, giving our Constitution a barely passing grade of C-, saying that many of the Constitution's provisions promote either unjust or ineffective government. What are some of those provisions, and what exactly do you suggest we can do about it? The Electoral College right now is clearly low-hanging fruit. We are seeing the problems with the Electoral College. For the last 200 years, there have been systematic efforts to get rid of it. All of them have failed because of what I regard as probably the worst single feature of the Constitution, which is Article 5, that makes it as a practical matter next to impossible to amend the Constitution with regard to anything truly significant. And not only does that work so that we get far, far fewer constitutional amendments than we ought to, but it also infantilizes us as a political culture because the whole idea of constitutional reform, including, for example, campaign finance reform, seems hopeless once you realize the hurdles that have to be surmounted in order to do it. I've read a lot of your work and I've watched some of your videos. It seems like your dream is that we kind of reconvene a constitutional convention again 
And I'm just wondering, with our horribly partisan situation, we can't even agree on a stimulus package. How would you honestly feel we could amend or rewrite the Constitution, regardless of what Article 5 says? Right. Nita Saget asked this question very often, and I will also confess that it's true that most of my friends, family, and professional colleagues think I'm crazy in persisting in wanting a new constitutional convention, but I do. So if we're going to engage in what is necessarily an aspect of fantasy, because there is no new constitutional convention on the horizon right now, let me start with how the delegates would be chosen. And I would do it at random, choose roughly 700 fellow Americans, good and true, with minimal sorts of stratification to make sure that not everybody comes from California or New England or whatever, but otherwise really have a nationwide citizen jury, which would serve the valuable purpose of taking it out of the debates of ordinary politics that have led to the polarization. Secondly, insofar as almost all of my concerns are structural, not what rights are not protected by the Constitution. It's not that I think that rights are important, but I do believe that the legal academy in particular grotesquely overemphasizes the importance of the rights provisions of the Constitution. That's what we teach. That's what students want to take courses about. And what we spend way, way too little time on are the structural provisions of the Constitution that are wrongly viewed as dull and boring. I want a constitutional convention to discuss the structural provisions of the Constitution. And quite frankly, if you have what are sometimes called sunrise provisions, so that the provisions of a new Constitution would not take effect until, let us say, 2028. I think you could have a remarkably civil conversation among people across the political spectrum about to take only one example. Well, actually, before you get there, before we take a look at the argument, because I want to dive into the fantasy a little deeper, tell me what the education level is of these 700 delegates you've just picked. It would be a statistical sample of the United States. There would be, I don't know how many people in the United States, what percentage have gone to college, what percentage have PhDs, what percentage are lawyers, what percentage didn't graduate from high school. But a well-done sample would pretty much mimic what the American people look like. And quite frankly, many of the issues that are most important to discuss are not rocket science and do not require an advanced degree. Insofar as I imagine a convention holding hearings all over the country, maybe all over the world, and getting insights to the various ways different countries, and for that matter, different states. One of the things I dislike about most American legal education is the way it focuses only on the national constitution and pays no attention to the fact that there are 50 state constitutions that are really quite interestingly different. Well, let's talk about that for just a minute, because a more recent constitution that's written, I think, is a good illustration of how we've lost our brevity and brilliance in writing, and that would be the California constitution, which is over 400 pages. How would we put this new constitution together and hope that we could be succinct and powerful? 
Well, I think we overdo the virtues of succinctness. The fact is, in 1787, the framers, and this is not meant as a criticism of the framers, I spent almost no time engaging in founder bashing. The framers in 1787 could not have envisioned the modern administrative state, which is not going to go away. They could not have envisioned, except maybe for Alexander Hamilton, the need for a central bank and whether a central bank should or should not be under kind of ordinary political control. There's a terrific article written by two political scientists, Milo Verstag and Emily Zakin, pointing out that most American state constitutions, including the California constitutions, are considerably longer than the U.S. Constitution because they wrestle with more problems. The fact is the 1787 Constitution wrestled with the problems that were at the forefront in 1787, including, incidentally, slavery about which there's quite a bit in the Constitution when all is said and done. Let's get down to a little more brass tacks here and talk about some of the specific areas that are most egregious and really need some attention. Sandy, you've talked about the concept that we can't get rid of an incompetent president. First of all, other than present company, when has that been the case where we wanted to get rid of somebody who didn't really qualify for the office after they were elected? Qualify might not be quite the right word here. You know, competence can get to issues of just capacity. But one wants, especially in a modern president, and again, one of the things I'm quite confident of is that nobody in 1787, except Alexander Hamilton in his fantasies about an elected monarch, envisioned the modern president and the powers of the modern presidency. So it's a real question of wisdom. Wait a minute. One of their great fears was that the president would become too much like a king. Oh, sure. That's why Hamilton, in fact, was disappointed. But if it had been up to Hamilton, we would have had a lifetime tenure for president with much more power, even than Article II assigns the president. But he lost. I mean, he was an important founder. But as with, paradoxically, James Madison, they were at least as disappointed as gratified by the actual decisions made in Philadelphia, because most of the Philadelphians were not taken with the idea of a very powerful president. I think they would have been shocked. Ed, let me just bring you back in for a minute, because Sandy mentioned Alexander Hamilton's preference that the president was kind of a lifetime appointment, which obviously didn't survive. But it did survive the concept of a lifetime appointment in Supreme Court judges. And you have commented a number of times on how you feel that the Constitution needs to be amended in that regard. The issue was that at Philadelphia, at the convention, no one envisioned a Supreme Court of the sort that we have. Most of them did not envision judicial review. Certainly during Washington's term as president, there was no such thing as judicial review. They didn't review the constitutionality of legislation. And anytime that issue was raised, they didn't, you know, they had to quickly change the subject. They envisioned that the court would simply make the laws uniform. They didn't even have lower courts in the federal constitution. They provided that they could be created, but they voted down whether they would create them as a certainty. So they had a whole different view of how the judges would operate. And if the judges don't have judicial review, then it really doesn't matter too much whether they're lifetime or revolving. 
also, when you add to that, people didn't live as long. <laughs> Life tenure would mean quite a bit less back then. So when you add all those things up, they just weren't thinking about the Supreme Court in the way we think about it today. That's why today many people would favor some sort of term limits as every single state has a limitation, not term limits, but a limitation on, on the terms of a judge so that they need to be reelected or reappointed every 10 years or six years or eight years or 12 years. It depends on the state. And that sort of reform would seem to be a possible one that a new convention would come up with. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic read extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my but dream. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being it's questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. Wonders to whom she should give the second dice. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the ones that The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in front of you. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kurtco.com slash a moment of your time. We're back with Sandy Levinson. Sandy, uh, you and your wife, Cynthia, wrote Fault Lines in the Constitution, a graphic novel for young readers. When talking about one premise, you said more than half of the U.S. population lives in nine states, which means they get 18 senators. Now, obviously, we're getting to that check and balance conversation that Jane mentioned a minute ago. But that 18 senators, with over half the population, is compared to 100 seats. So that doesn't seem quite right now, does it? I loathe the United States Senate independently of whether I approve on a given day what they happen to be doing, because I think that the modern Senate is an indefensible affirmative action program for the residents of small states. You can also demonstrate that the relatively small states are demographically different. They're not simply smaller but they tend to be significantly wider, often significantly older, often significantly more religious, and certainly more rural than other states. You know, California is full of farms, and it's a mistake to reduce California to LA and San Francisco or San Diego. But God knows California is an infinitely more diverse state, and its political leaders have to be sensitive to far, far more cross-cutting political interests than the senators from the Dakotas, whether they're Democrats or Republicans. Let me quickly add here, you can blame the founders in the end for this Senate, but you can't blame them in the beginning. People forget that in the Virginia plan, the one drafted by Washington and Madison and Franklin and all the other original wise people there, they called for a Senate that was apportioned based on population, just as the House of Representatives. And they fought tooth and nail not to compromise and put a Senate like the old Articles of Confederation. They lost because the small states insisted on it. But people like Washington and Madison realized it or foresaw what we'd end up with. And 
opposed it vigorously. So it wasn't in the founder's original idea. So, Ed, how would you amend this now, where we allow 18% of the senators to represent over 50% of the people in the country? We have 250 years of tradition in this respect, and I can't imagine you could ever get a constitutional amendment passed because the Constitution Amendment requires ratification by a supermajority of the states. The states that benefit from the current approach will never approve of a change in this respect. I mean, I think Ed is right. If we ever were to get the new constitutional convention that I very much want, it would happen if and only if there were a real popular movement with kind of genuine political leadership, which there is not now. There is not a single national leader of stature who is even willing to talk about constitutional reform let alone a new constitutional convention, that if you look at the actual support in Congress on those occasions when the Electoral College has been the subject of debate, the small states are pretty much split. What one discovers is that the most serious movement for constitutional amendment in 1969 was stopped in the Senate, not the House. It got through two-thirds of the House. It was stopped in the Senate by a filibuster jointly led by Sam Irvin and Strom Thurmond, who were right supremacists. Sam Irvin turned out to be the hero of Watergate, but he was also a dedicated Southern Democrat slash white supremacist. Strom Thurmond had run for president in 1948 on the Dixiecrat ticket as a white supremacist, and then he ultimately joined the Republican Party, and it killed it. Later on, in the 80s, attempts to raise the issue of reform were killed by large state battleground senators. California basically didn't know there was a presidential election going on because I'm quite confident that none of the candidates visited you except to raise some money. If the presidential election were purely popular vote, they would campaign differently. As Trump said, if there was no electoral college, he would have campaigned differently. And of course, he claims he would still win. You know, I think that argument is completely correct in 2000. One has to concede that we have no idea who would have won a national popular vote election between Al Gore and George W. Bush because they would have campaigned completely differently. I think that's false this year. I think that both parties, for their own reasons, really focused on turnout and that Donald Trump's losing by 8 million votes could not have been made up under any plausible alternative campaign he could have won. My point is that while I think there are reasons to change the Electoral College, if it is changed to a popular vote, all states will still not get equal attention. You'll just have the candidates spending more time in the highly populated areas. Probably. That's what politicians do. They focus on where the votes are. But it's also the case that they have an incentive to pay some attention to the lower populated states because every vote will be equal. 
the honest response to your point is we really don't know for sure. But what we do know is that contemporary presidential campaigns are travesties of what one might imagine a national election process to be like. I'm going to grab onto that word travesty for just a second and Ed bring you in. And I'd like to talk about some of the things that you pointed out in your article that I'd say travesty is probably a good word that motivated you to want to make some changes in the Constitution. You feel the power to engage in war should return to Congress as the founders intended, except maybe to repel a military attack. Why do you feel that way? And what happened in this administration that brought that to light? It wasn't just this administration that brought that to light. It's been an ongoing development. The founders were clear that uh, the power to declare war should be in Congress because they had witnessed the abuses of the British monarchs in starting wars. And they wanted the people through their Congress to have to decide if we have a war. And then the only exception was they said, well, yeah, but what if there's an immediate attack and we don't have time to uh, get together? We should be able to repel that. They agreed to that. And that's why they ended up with their final language. But that was the clear intent. And we have seen it. It's not particularly Donald Trump. In fact, Donald Trump was an isolationist. He violated that provision much more than, say, Obama or Clinton or Ronald Reagan, for that matter, with Granada. This has been an ongoing problem where the presidency has assumed to themselves the power to go into something that has plenty of time for debate in Congress to do. And I think that would better reflect what the founders meant and what I think the people want. I thought the check and balance there, Ed, was that Congress holds the purse strings. Well, we thought Congress held the purse strings, but not according to Donald Trump. He gets to spend money however he wants to. The Congress, for example, had clearly said no money for the border wall, and he even signed the legislation, and he took money from something out. And if you look at these other wars that people have participated in, once you get into a war, it's almost impossible to pull the funding, but presidents have used funding not appropriated for that purpose because they had the military to go ahead and start a war, as happened in Libya. They didn't ask Congress, do you have money to fight the war in Libya or the war in Kosovo? They just went in and used existing military weapons that they had and fought the war. Ed, I fully agree with you. I think that that is one of the worst distortions of our constitutional structure that's taken place. I'll also make the point on the checks and balances and the military adventurism. It's, it's interesting because we've noticed in the Trump administration that one reason the checks and balances didn't work is the Senate rolled over and played dead and didn't defend their own powers. But the same happens with the military adventurism of presidents and that the power to declare war is in the Congress. But what happens, and you saw it in the Iraq war where George W. Bush went into Iraq, congressmen get scared to go back home and to be seen soft on war. And that goes back to my original point about money corrupting our system. And we're going to be talking about that, Jane, when we come back from this break. We'll be right back. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. 
Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. Okay, we're back with Professor Sanford Levinson, and let's dive into Jane's pet peeve here. One of the things that clearly, Jane, you feel could bring us more legitimacy and governance over politics is that campaign finance reform. Tell us about your thoughts there. Well, for many years now, every time I think about a public policy problem that we're facing, whether it's the environment or gun control or any other number of things, as well as the fact that our people feel very disenfranchised from their government, our Congress is not adequately responsive to the people. Give us some examples, Jane. If it's working right, the Congress should do two things. The Congress should reflect uh, the views of their constituencies in their districts. And secondly, economically, if our Congress is working right, they should be passing laws that deal with midterm consequences and long-term consequences of the economy and the level playing field that our businesses have to work with. So one such circumstance, Jane, you'd have to comment on the gun lobbies versus the national opinion of what should be done with gun laws. Clearly, there's a disconnect between our governors affecting change based on their campaign finances versus change that is wanted by the American citizens. That's right. And the NRA is also backed a lot by the gun manufacturers. They've just got a lot of money to throw around. And that's one small example where you've got a huge percentage of the American people who want better gun safety measures. And Congress, in the face of the Sandy Hook tragedy and Parkland, has been incapable of doing so. I think that's one of the most stark examples. Sandy, how would you affect change in our campaign finance situation? I mean, right now you've got massive amount of money that's sometimes actually donated to a candidate. Other times you just have separate PACs who are separate from the candidate who spend ridiculous amounts of money. It takes so much money to run for dog catcher in this country. What would you do about that and how would you affect that change? You know, I agree with what Jane is saying substantially. I don't have a good answer to it because money talks and shouts and is very clever at doing workarounds. One virtue of random selection is that you don't have any elections. What you do have is the selection of a group of people that any social scientist would describe as more representative of the relevant public than those people elected to public office. What the framers imagined was that you would vote for candidates on the basis of your estimation of their civic virtue that you would pick those people who were committed to the public interest, who were above party, and you had no idea necessarily what their position was on any issue of the day. What you knew is that they were virtuous. That vision, as I say, just collapsed. We can debate about how early in the 19th century it collapsed. But today, rightly or wrongly, most people would say they vote on some notion of, I like the candidate's policies. 
Sandy, I've got to say, so we're, we're sitting here on a show called Meet Me in the Middle. So let me just throw this out. The American voters have, I believe, the American voters have spoken really loudly. 74 million people still voted for Donald Trump with everything we know about Donald Trump. And look what happened to the Senate and look what happened to the House. A message has been sent and all of us need to listen. I think what you say has to be taken very seriously about Trumpism. I would also point out, I don't know what the current vote is for Joe Biden. I think it's around 82 million or maybe 83 million by now. He won by the greatest margin against an incumbent president. I think since Martin Van Buren in 1840, Donald Trump got beaten and he got beaten fair and square. That's why I say that a bunch of Trumpistas whom I really do not like, and in some ways I fear more than I fear Donald Trump, because Donald Trump had the virtue of being incompetent, and Tom Cotton is not incompetent. I don't understand why they're sticking with him. Now, maybe they figure they'll stick with him until January 20th, and at that point, somebody will start saying, you know, we have to move on from Donald J. Trump. That's what I find so completely mysterious. Trumpism, I think we're going to have with us into the indefinite future. When was the last time a one-term president came back to run after being voted out of office? Ed? To run? Oh, it's happened quite often. The last time it came back to win was Grover Cleveland. But to come back and run, a lot of them have tried it. Really? Do you expect we're going to be in that situation again soon? I'm a historian. (laughs) Ask me in 20 years. How about you, Jane? What do you think? We're going to be there? I think Trump will certainly say he'll consider running. He's certainly not going to rule it out because that will give him more of a microphone and more influence in elections. And he will have a lot of money to try to influence the various congressional and state elections. So whether he'll run in 24 or not, I don't think even he knows, but he will use it to keep himself relevant. Now, Sandy, uh, do you like making predictions? Well, one little twist with regard to Jane's comments on campaign finance. My hunch is that a lot of big money simply ignored the Donald Trump presidency, that they didn't like Trump. They didn't trust Trump. They thought that, in fact, Biden would win. The Koch brothers would be the most notable example of this. I doubt that they contributed $10 to Donald Trump. I don't know what Sheldon Adelson contributed. I suspect a lot, a lot of money. But I think that it's not that the Koch brothers retired from politics, but they funneled a lot of money to down ballot races. Joe Biden got a lot of money from ordinary people making, you know, $20, $40 contributions, et cetera. That's certainly Bernie Sanders. But what we don't really realize, and this comes back to our overarching conversation, We overestimate the importance of the presidency, and we put so much energy into electing a president that we tend to ignore the so-called down-ballot races. And I suspect that you would find that a lot of hedge fund managers 
and the Koch brothers, maybe even George Soros, were putting money into House and Senate races, but that one of the things that might explain the unpredicted Republican success is that they might have been able to outspend their Democratic opponents. You've actually made a couple of good points, Sandy. First of all, the Republicans have not ignored the down-ballot races, not only down-ballot in the House and the Senate, but in the 50 states, where the, they're, and that's gone on for 40 or more years, where the Democrats have and are just waking up to that fact. And in terms of, of what's going to happen with Trump and why aren't other Republicans coming to the fore, I think that will happen. First of all, Trump did not make friends in Washington. I can't imagine really one real friend he made in Washington. It was all very transactional. The minute he's no longer considered influential, the knives will be out. Secondly, the Republican Party, as well as the Democratic Party, but the Republican Party is filled with ambitious people who want to be president. And that has not stopped. I'd say there's even more. So I think It'll take a year or two, but I do think that you're going to see a different dynamic. Ivanka Trump is going to be interested in running for politics. I think she's more viable than Don Jr. When you do talk about down-ballot spending, though, the Senate states and the House of Representatives, we know the figures on. You know, in states like Maine, in South Carolina, in Kentucky, in Montana, in Alaska, the Democrat candidates for Senate far, far outweighs the Republican appointment. The money was pouring into those states. They couldn't spend all the money they received. They still lost. And so that's why I said this was not a repudiation of the Republican Party. If people like the incumbent Republican senators in in Montana and Iowa and Maine and North Carolina, which were greatly outspent, can still win. If Joe Biden, who won those states, didn't have enough coattails to carry those people through, they didn't win them all, didn't win Montana, didn't win Iowa, but people were splitting their tickets. And if you look back two years before, then even at the down ballot level in the House, there were tremendous gains by the Democrats because that was their way of voting against Donald Trump by electing a Democratic House of Representatives. Now it didn't matter. And so many of those seats, especially in the suburbs like Orange County in California or suburban New York, flipped back to the Republicans. So I saw this as in some ways a recentering election toward the old Republican Party. And that does give me hope that the Republican Party will move beyond Donald Trump at some point as Jane suggests, not right away. Ed, we're going to put a pin in our season right there with that statement. And Sandy Levitson, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. How can people follow you? I'm embarrassed to say I don't really do social media. I would certainly encourage everybody, you were kind enough to mention this book that my wife and I wrote. There's a print version. There's also the graphic novel version. It is ostensibly for teenagers, but my view is that it's for the grandparents, parents, aunts and uncles, and anybody else who might pick it up. It's called Fault Lines in the Constitution, the graphic novel. We will gladly send signed book plates to anybody who gets in touch with us. Sandy Levinson, Jane Ulbricht, Professor Ed Larson, thanks so much for joining us. 
Thanks to our producing editor, A.J. Mosley, and our brand new producer-editor, Joey Salvia. Nice to have you here, Joey. Music for Meet Me in the Middle is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Wait, wait, just a second. Uh, Turn down the music, Joey. We are a country full of laws with politicians who have great flaws. We thought our Constitution would preserve this country well. But when a president can avoid prosecution, the checks and balances go to hell. If politics ends up front and center and good governing takes a vacation, if people are hungry and lacking a mentor, our system needs recalibration. Through a horrific pandemic like a crawl through glass, our people were strong and resilient. We lost too many people because of an ass when we needed a leader who's brilliant. Sometimes, as we produce this show, meeting issues in the middle, we feel a change in status quo should not play second fiddle. We've got a new administration after an election our framers hadn't planned for. Perhaps our laws need alteration, assuring checks and balances Congress can't ignore. So now, we thank you, all who've worked this podcast so well. And for listening to We Thank You True. We pray you stay healthy and home where you dwell. It's been such a weird year, which has challenged this nation. And now that the holiday is near... It's time we start a few weeks of stay-home vacation. May your 2021 be a much better year. From all of us at Kurtco Media and Meet Me in the Middle, we wish for you a holiday filled with love, inspiration, family, and friends, and we'll see you next year, right here talking politics on Meet Me in the Middle. Bye-bye, everybody. From Kurtco Media, media for your mind.